So I just want to make sure um, everyone is aware. Uh, do you guys know that on Tuesday we had an election? That happened on Tuesday. Um, so this is the first Sunday after Election Tuesday. And I don't know if you, if you would agree with this, but I'm not sure I remember an election season with as strong emotions as this election season. Uh, there was a lot of different emotions. One of the most common emotions was that of anxiety. Um, and it became its own type of anxiety. It was called election stress. There was a New York Times article um, that came out that said there were people talking to their therapist about election anxiety. So anxiety was so bad that people were actually talking to professionals about it. And they interviewed some of the psychiatrists and uh, psychologists, and they were saying that people were saying to them, how am I going to feel safe? What's going to happen to me? There, there was a great fear of what the unknown was going to bring. So there was just a lot of election stress, and they said it, it didn't matter which side of the political aisle you were on. People were coming and talking to therapists about this. Now, we've, we've come through Election Tuesday, but I would say there's still a lot of strong reactions that are out there. I had one person who told me they just turned off Facebook uh, you know, after the election. But if you didn't and you kept to Facebook and Twitter, you might have seen some really strong reactions, a continued sense by some of anxiety and stress. For example, Chris Evans, the guy who plays uh, Captain America, he said that he was devastated after Tuesday. Devastated. Ariana Grande, performing artist, said she was in tears after election. Now, this isn't the only emotions that are out there. If you listen to any of conservative talk radio, which I did this week, there were people who, they weren't in tears at all. They said, our country has been saved. Like salvation has come. You know, that was the language. Very strong emotions on either side of the aisle. Now, these emotions aren't just happening out there in the world. They're happening in our churches. I've been in communication with people within our own church, both who had great sense of worry about the future after Tuesday and some who were on cloud nine after Tuesday. And, and it brings up the question to me, as we've been hearing voices from Fox and MSNBC, have we been hearing voices from friends on Twitter and Facebook? I think a voice we need to hear right now is God's voice. Because before we're Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, or Green Party, who knows? Um, before we're any of that, we are Christians. And today I want to find out what might God have to say to us as Christians at this point. Now, in order to do that, I want us to turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. So turn to Daniel chapter 4. The reason I want us to go to Daniel chapter 4 is because the book of Daniel is written about God's people living in a situation of change, not too unlike the change we're experiencing. The people of Israel had been called to be God's people in the world for the blessing of all nations, and they failed at that task. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, and they weren't. And God warned them, if you don't, take this role seriously, I'm going to remove you for a period of time from your country, and I'm going to take you to a foreign country. And God kept his word, and he did that by using Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king, and he took, him, took uh, Jerusalem, destroyed it, and brought a number of people to Babylon, different exiles, Daniel, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a number of other Jewish people. So we see in the book of Daniel that there are these Jewish exiles living under a new political leader, 
living in a very pluralistic society in which there were many different conceptions of God and having to figure out how do I live as God's people in this change? And it's similar to us in that we've seen a lot of changes in our country in recent years. And we've had to figure out in this pluralistic society we live in, how do we live as Christians here? And God's message to these Jews in Babylon and his message to us today, as we're going to see in Daniel 4, is this. God is in charge. God is in charge. Now, what does that mean that God is in charge? What we're going to see as we walk through Daniel 4 is it means at least three things. First, God has the power to appoint and remove leaders. Second, God has no term limits. He rules forever, unlike all other political leaders. And third, God's kingdom comes first. God's kingdom is our first priority as Christians over any other allegiance. So let's walk through Daniel 4 and see how we learn about this idea that God is in charge. Now the first 33 verses deal with the fact that God appoints and removes leaders. I'm not going to walk through all 33 verses. We're going to wait till we get to the end of that section to read through it. But I want to summarize some of what's being discussed there. Basically, it's all about a dream. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream of this huge, really tall tree that's so tall, so huge, that people across the world can see it in the dream. But this tree that's providing shelter for animals and food for people, it gets cut down. Not all the way, there's still roots in the ground, but it gets cut down. And then a weird thing happens, the tree turns into an animal. It's a very strange dream. And then at the end of this dream, after the tree turns into an animal, um, you see this statement being made by an angel in the dream. The angel says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. This is what Nebuchadnezzar hears the angel saying. The Nebuchadnezzar can make sense of this statement, but he doesn't know what it has to do to, about a tree getting cut down in an animal. So he wants to figure it out. So he calls his advisors, his, advisors, his psychics, his astrologers, magicians. He says, what does this dream mean? I need to know. None of them know. So Nebuchadnezzar realizes, wait, there's someone who I think may know this. There's another person working in my government named Daniel. And Daniel has helped me figure out dreams before. And he has a God who helps him interpret dreams. So let me get him. So he brings Daniel in and Daniel talks to Nebuchadnezzar and says, I know what this dream is about. And this is what Daniel says. He says, this tree, this really influential large tree that everyone in the world can see, that's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's your kingdom. That's so influential that it reaches into all the world. But that tree and your kingdom is going to get cut down. You're not going to be a king for a period of time. And then what's going to happen is, you're going to have a mental breakdown and start living as basically one of the animals for seven years. And then he says this statement again. This is all to teach you, Nebuchadnezzar, important lesson. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. That's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn. And Daniel's concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, I don't want this to happen to you. So what God wants you to do is stop oppressing people with your power Turn to God, start living for him. And if you do this, you might not have to get to this point. Now we're going to jump into the passage at that point and see how does Nebuchadnezzar respond. Hearing this from Daniel, you'd think he would change. He would do something. Let's pick up in verse 28. I'm in the English Standard Version. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, remember this is the third time we're hearing this phrase, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Nebuchadnezzar had a year to grapple in his thought life with the warning he was given by Daniel in this dream he had. Even after 12 months, he didn't change. He was standing there walking around Babylon, praising himself at what a great job he was doing as king. Right in the middle of that, God cuts him down. And God says, for seven years, you're going to live basically as an animal so that you will learn, I am in charge and I can appoint you as king, and I can remove you as king. Now, one thing I want to make clear, when you see this mental breakdown Nebuchadnezzar has, there could be a misunderstanding here. You might think, wait a minute, does that mean that mental illness, when it appears, is basically God's judgment? And I can tell you, as working in the mental health field for the last 15 years, it is not. So if you know someone or if you're experiencing mental illness, this is not what's happening here. People with mental illness can live very godly lives and still deal with that. What's happening here is, Nebuchadnezzar, who was thinking of himself and others thought of him as a god, God needed to humble him to the point where he was living as an animal so that he would realize that he was only a man. He needed to realize the lesson that we need to realize today, which is God's in charge, and he's the one who can appoint kings and presidents, and he's the one who can remove kings and presidents. And I think we need to be challenged by this section right here. We need to be challenged by this idea in a couple different ways. First of all, we need to be challenged around the anxiety and worry that we might be feeling after Tuesday. Because there are some Christians who feel, just like the New York Times article said, a great fear of the unknown, a sense, what's going to happen? I don't know. Things are going to just spiral out of control. And as a, well, I might understand that if you don't know Christ. And if you don't know that God's in charge, there's really no room for that in a worldview in which you understand who's really in charge. Jesus said it better than anyone else. When Jesus stood vulnerably before the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, right before Pilate was about to sentence him to murder. I mean, if there was anyone who could say, I am vulnerable and anxious about what people in power can do, it was Jesus. And this is what Pilate says to him. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus understood that any authority that's in our world only has authority insofar that God is willing for them to have an authority. And we need to have confidence. We can't focus on the insecurity we feel around any political leader, but instead the security that we have before a God who is truly sovereign over all political leaders. 
So we need to be challenged around the anxiety, the fear, the worry we might have. But we need to be challenged in a different way because some of you, different way as well, but some of you aren't too worried or stressed at this point. Some of you are elated. Some of you are feeling like, I've never felt, I haven't felt this good in a year and a half. You know, I'm not stressed at all. The thing we need to be challenged about if we're in that place is we need to be challenged about our pride, potentially. When you look at Nebuchadnezzar, what was God doing? God was saying, right in the middle of this time where he's bragging about his political position, God immediately takes him away from his kingdom because of his pride. And and some of us and some people I've heard might say, man, at this point, I just want to stick it to the opposition. I'm bragging about the fact that my team won. I want to really make sure they suffer for what they've done to our country. That's sort of a perspective. But Nebuchadnezzar is challenged by God. Remember what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. You need to use your power right. You're using it to oppress people. You need to use that power for the good of others. So if you're in a situation right now where you're feeling really good politically, and you're feeling like, I'm finally in a place of power. My team won. My party won. You need to be challenged around the fact that any power we have politically or otherwise isn't for our own sake, but is for the sake of other people. It's to be used for the benefit of the common good. So the first thing we see as we walk through Daniel chapter 4 is that God is in charge. And he's in charge and that he's able to appoint and remove any leader he wants. And that should challenge our fears and worries and anxieties, but also our pride. Now as we walk through this story, the next thing we're going to learn is an important thing about God being in charge, which is God is always in charge. He has no term limits. We know that any president has a four-year term. At the most, they can get eight years, but then their rule is over. If you're a tyrant somewhere else in the world, you might be able to get your lifetime as ruler, but then it ends. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes this about God and God being in charge through being humbled. Let's continue reading in verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, now this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Notice Nebuchadnezzar, he's had his kingdom restored to him now. As he's had his mind restored to him, comes to a realization. Verses 34, you see three statements he makes that show the realization. He says, the Most High God lives forever, unlike him, Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion is an everlasting dominion unlike Nebuchadnezzar's, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Again, unlike Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar realizes how temporary his own rule is. It can be snatched away from him in a second by God. But he realizes how different God's rule is. It continues from generation to generation. And I think it's important for us that we realize that when we say God is in charge, part of what we're saying is, He has always been in charge. He's still in charge. And he will continue to be in charge forever. And when we remember that, it saves us from a couple of different errors we can make. The first error we can sometimes make is the error of hopelessness as Christians. 
I remember a time, I guess it was 24 years ago, kind of feeling old, when Bill Clinton won the presidency. And I remember sitting in my brother's car and I was listening to the radio and people were calling in weeping, saying an era of captivity has begun in our country and just devastated at what the future was going to bring. I just remember that as, as a young guy. Now, Bill Clinton's presidency has come and gone. Other people's presidencies have come and gone. But from all that, from generation to generation, God has continued to be in charge. And no matter what any political leader could do, no matter how much damage they could do to a country, and I don't want to minimize the potential that any political leader has to do damage to a country, but regardless of what they do, hopelessness isn't an option for Christians because we know that God will be in charge whenever that one political leader is no longer in charge. God's kingdom will continue. There's no room for hopelessness. The second error, though, isn't necessarily hopelessness. It's a kind of messianic hopefulness in one particular leader. It's very easy to say, not, oh, I'm not hopeless, but man, this person in charge. Man, amazing things are going to happen. You know, we almost use messianic language. These are things I've heard. I can finally hope again. He's going to restore our country. You know, he's going to bring peace. You know, these are things that we say about messiahs. These aren't things we say about political leaders. But this, and I can get it, you know, if, if we don't have a messiah, I can get it. We can look for messiahs in the wrong places. Sarah Silverman, who is a comedian, wasn't joking when she was saying this week uh, in a tweet, she, she said, some give me hope. She was looking for hope. As Christians, we have a messiah and we have hope. And one of the interesting things when the Messiah is talked about in Scripture is his kingdom is always contrasted to other kingdoms because his kingdom will never end. Notice when God was talking to David in 2 Samuel, he was talking to David about the future and about the Messiah who is going to come from his family. And this is what he tells David in describing this Messiah. He says, And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice those words that are repeated, forever. God's kingdom lasts forever. And therefore, our true hope shouldn't be in any one leader who could bring about important, though temporary, change. Our ultimate hope should always be in the true God who will reign forever. That's our Christian calling. So just as Nebuchadnezzar learned, he's got term limits and God doesn't. We as Christians need to always remember that we shouldn't fall into hopelessness or we shouldn't put our hope in the wrong place. In any election for the rest of our lives, our hope should always be in the God whose kingdom lasts forever. Now, the third thing we're going to learn, we've learned that God appoints and removes leaders. We've learned that he has no term limits. The third thing that we learn when we understand that God is in charge is this, that his kingdom must come first. His kingdom must come first. We must give our allegiance to him before we give allegiance to any political leader, any political movement, any political party, even a country. God's kingdom must come first. Read with me verses 36 and 37. Final verses in this section. At the same time, my reason returned to me, 
And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar, again, he has his kingdom restored to him, and he's learned something through this process. He's learned there is a king higher than him. Notice that he says in verse 37, he honors the king of heaven. And he realizes he needs to prioritize God's kingdom, and he needs to give him honor above himself and his own kingdom, because if he doesn't, the last line in this verse is true. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He knows that really well from his own experience that when he has walked in pride, God is able to humble him. God's kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar realizes, has to come first in his own perspective more than his own kingdom does. God's kingdom comes first. Now, when we think about what this means for our own lives, that God's kingdom come first, I want to make sure I'm clear on what it doesn't mean before I say what it does mean. What it doesn't mean is that there's no place for Christians to serve in earthly kingdoms. Daniel was serving in the Babylonian government. Joseph served in the Egyptian government. Nehemiah served in the Persian government. These were all God's people who served in governments. And there have been Christians throughout the centuries who've served in human governments to bring about good for other people. Political action and political service can help real people with real needs. So God's kingdom doesn't come coming first. doesn't mean don't be involved in politics. It doesn't mean that at all. God can use you in those spaces. What it does mean that God's kingdom comes first is that how Christians relate to other people within political processes should look different. How Christians are should be different. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice for Daniel, you can see him as a great example. When Daniel got told by Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar's dream was going to mean he was going to get cut down, right, that his kingdom was going to end, how would you respond if you were Daniel? Let me tell you how I'd respond. I'd say, you ripped me away from my family in Israel. You've tried to brainwash me into becoming a Babylonian. You almost burned to death three of my best friends. I think I'm kind of happy that you're about to, you know, let's see how it feels for you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's not how Daniel responded. Look how Daniel responded. It says, after he heard what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was dismayed for a while. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, he said. That's a very godly response that Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, that Daniel had. And we're called as Christians to the same thing. If you look in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he's writing within the context of Roman rule that was trying to stamp out Christianity. So Nero and other um, you know, leaders within Rome, um, they weren't welcoming the Christian cause. But what Paul said to Timothy and what he wanted the churches to do was this. He said, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. We are called as Christians to pray for our leaders. Regardless of who that leader is, 
And there's political diversity in our church. And I know sometimes it's easier or harder through the years for you to pray for one particular leader. But as a Christian, you're called to this. Um, A modern-day example of somebody who I think did a really good job in a public setting of of showing a Christian example of what it means to respond to people who are your political opponents was a guy named Ernie Johnson. If you're a basketball fan, you might know who Ernie Johnson is. He's a commentator on... TNT on TBS with Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. And they never really talk about politics or faith. But this week, they spent some time talking about politics or faith. And what's interesting is Ernie Johnson didn't vote for one of the major candidates, so he didn't get his way. And Ernie Johnson could have been bitter. And Ernie Johnson could have just put down people. But it's interesting, and we're going to play this clip, to hear how a Christian is grappling with things and changes. And I think it's a great example to us. But here's the deal. I just hope that he's all in, in, uh, in fixing the wounds in this country and the divides that separate this country. And I want to be part of that, too. And for me to be part of it, I have to look in the mirror and I have to say, how am I going to be a better man? How am I going to be a better neighbor? How am I going to be a better citizen? How am I going to be a better American? How can I be a fountain and not a drain? And number three, I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion, but we're already talking about politics. and. So I'm going to go the R direction, too. I never know from one election to the next who's going to be in the Oval Office. But I always know who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me. And that's who I answer to. I'm a Christian. I follow this guy named Jesus. You might have heard of him. And the greatest commandment he gave me was to love others. And Scripture also tells us to pray for our leaders. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to pray for all those people right now who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who are afraid at this point. Pray for them, too. In short, I'm praying for America. And I'm praying that one day we're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what? That Don- okay. I really appreciate that clip because he was saying that his calling now, regardless of what his political views were, was to pray for the president. And his calling was to pray for our country. And his calling was as a Christian to look at himself and say, how am I contributing to making, to loving my neighbor well? Instead of just looking and being critical of other people. Now, this isn't an easy thing to do. I once talked to a Christian who said, um, we were talking about the issue of praying for political leaders. And he said that he couldn't pray for President Obama. And it talks about this verse from Paul. And he said, I just can't do it. I just can't do it because of how much he disagrees. Now, why would it be that some of us might find it hard to even just pray for people that we disagree with? I think one of the reasons is because sometimes we are more shaped by how people at Fox or MSNBC or talk radio or any other political commentators or other people are framing how we are to interact around politics. We're not looking, we're not spending the time looking at Scripture and saying, how does Jesus respond to people he disagrees with? When we take time and look at Jesus, we can see a real contrast with how other people in our own world deal with people they disagree with politically. Jesus, instead of trying to basically defeat his political opponents, went to the cross and died for his opponents and taught his followers to love their enemies. 
Jesus, instead of being enthroned in a palace where he would take his power and abuse it to his political enemies, was enthroned on a cross where he took upon himself the suffering that his political enemies had caused him. Instead of wearing a golden crown or separating himself from people he disagreed with, he wore a crown of thorns for those people he disagreed with and was able to be willing to be mocked and embarrassed by them while still loving them and still forgiving them on the cross. And when Jesus rose again, instead of rising again and using that newfound authority to kind of get revenge on people he disagreed with, Jesus used that authority to start a movement where he wanted to make disciples, even of those who hated him and who hated his movement. Paul is a great example. This is what we see Jesus saying. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, i.e., I am in charge, Jesus said. But therefore, what I want you to do with that is go and make disciples of all nations. That's our calling. What would it be like if we as Christians, because we gave first allegiance to God's kingdom, what would it be like for us if we weren't ambassadors first and foremost of a political cause, but people experienced us as ambassadors first and foremost of Jesus? I believe if we can remember that God is in charge, and if we can remember that he's the one who appoints and he's the one who removes leaders. And we remember that he has no term limits. And we remember that his kingdom comes first. It can make great changes in our families, in our churches, and in our world. First, our families. Last Sunday, someone told my son, there's two more days until the election. And this is my son's statement. Oh, man, my life's going to end. What, like, how does he, what is he talking about? Studies have shown that when kids talk about politics, they're usually just echoing what their parents are saying about <laughs> politics. So what does that mean about me as a parent? I need to do a better job of modeling for my son and my family that God is in charge. And that doesn't change when any change happens in our country. And that he has no reason to fear because God's kingdom is never going to end. I need to model that. And what would happen if we modeled that for our families? A different way of thinking about politics. What would happen if in our churches, if this amazing thing happened where people could disagree with one another and not yell at each other or hate each other or call each other names? How countercultural would that be? If people walked into our church and they were like, wow, I just saw this political conversation happening during fellowship time and people were like being civil and listening. And asking thoughtful questions. What would it be like if Jesus was the master of how we interacted about politics, not the media? And finally, I think it would change the world because right now, the world sees a lot of times evangelical Christians as a voting block. They don't, if you remember, the word evangelical comes from the root word gospel, good news. It means these are people, evangelicals, whose main focus is on a crucified and risen Messiah. I'm not sure if I did a survey of what the world believed, evangelicals believed, how many times crucified, faith in crucified and risen Messiah would come up. I'm guessing it wouldn't. But what would happen if we understood that the first and foremost, not that we can't be involved in politics, but that first and foremost, our role was to convince people not of our political platform, but convince people that God loves them, wants to have a relationship for them, and died for them. That's the sort of impact that can happen in our world if we remember as Christians that God 
is in charge. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to remember the fact that um, you're ultimately in charge. You are the king of all kings. I confess to you personally, I often fail to remember this. And I often fail to live as a ambassador of you. But we as a church want to be different. We want to follow you and we want people in the world to see it. And we want people to come to know you because they sense there's something different about us. There's something different about people who know Jesus. So give us all wisdom. Help us to look at ourselves and see which ways we can be challenged and which ways we can better follow you in all of life. We at Grace want to live lives of worship. And that means every sphere of life, we need to think about how we can worship you in that sphere. And that's what we're talking about today. Show us how we can do it. Show us how we can be faithful to you no matter what changes happen in our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.